0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit CAC.org.
1: It's one thing to look at Christianity from the inside, but it's a very different thing to be on the outside of the Christian faith looking in. What is it like to be a person of another faith who is surrounded by Christians? One day I was leaving my home when I was still a pastor, running off to a meeting. I was a little bit late, and so I was uh, going as fast as I could from my front door to my car. And my next door neighbor, who uh, was Jewish, yells across the lawn to me, hey, Brian, I need to talk to you. Do you have a minute? And I said, well, I just have a minute. I'm already a little bit late. She says, it won't take long. And she came over and she said, Brian, I was listening to Christian radio all this morning. She said, not for inspiration, but for surveillance purposes. (laughs) And she said, "Um, the the preachers, I heard about five different preachers say somewhere in their broadcast the same thing. They said, we're going to take this country back for Jesus. And she tried to capture the accent that she heard it said in. We're going to take this country back for Jesus. And she said, Brian. What is that supposed to say to a Jewish person like me, to a Jewish mother like me? Does it mean I should pack up my kids and move to Canada? And I remember in that moment, I I felt what it must be like to be a part of the Jewish minority in a Christian majority country. This will be a two-part episode about understanding Christianity as neighbor. And in this episode, we'll be speaking with my good friend, someone I deeply, deeply respect, Rabbi Jill Jacobs. And she'll be talking about what it's like to be a Jew with Christians as your primary neighbors. Here's a quote from Do I Stay Christian? In my previous book, Faith After Doubt, I described an insight I had when I was nearly finished writing. I wrote the greatest loss I experienced through doubt was the loss of supremacy. And that loss was one of my greatest gains by greatest. I mean the loss that was deepest, most significant, most subtle and most wonderful. The beliefs I held so piously had for all my life without my consent or even awareness contributed to a sense of religious privilege, superiority, and supremacy. Those beliefs deserved to be doubted. And if I had not doubted them, that supremacy would still reign as a covert monarch in my psyche. The process of doubt not only dethroned that sense of religious supremacy, it took away the taste for supremacy of any kind. I don't want to be better than anyone. I don't want to win in any way that makes others lose. Harmony is at its heart, a state and a stage that loves solidarity, not supremacy. If it took the agony of doubt to bring me to this place, then thanks be to God and blessed be doubt. Rabbi Jill Jacobs, I am so happy to have this conversation with you. Um, I'm remembering when I first met you through the Auburn Senior Fellows, and we've spent quite a bit of time together over the last, how many years do you remember? eight years or?
2: At least five, six, seven, eight. I really, a long time.
1: (laughs) A long time. And our friendship has uh, meant a lot to me. And I am so impressed with the organization that you now lead, Trua. And I wonder if you could just give everyone a brief introduction to you, your story, and also your current work.
2: Thank you so much, Brian. It's really been also such a pleasure. I miss the time that we've gotten to spend together in person, um, but it's really been a Pleasure to have you as a friend for a number of years that neither of us can remember through Auburn and, and beyond. Um, I'm Rabbi Jill Jacobs. I'm the CEO of Trua, which is an organization that mobilizes more than 2,300 rabbis and cantors throughout the U.S. and Canada on human rights to protect and advance human rights, both here at home in the U.S. and Canada and also in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. And so we do that through organizing around specific campaigns and specific issues where we can have an impact through training rabbis and rabbinical students, cantors and cantorial students to be moral leaders and by amplifying the voices of rabbis and cantors as moral leaders to make the point that part of what it means to be a religious leader in this country or any time is to be a moral leader. Um, so that's some of the, the work that we do. And to move into some of what we've been talking about, over the past number of years, we've increasingly been teaching and working on anti-Semitism explicitly as we also work to fight racism and other bigotries. Because of course, in the last few years, we've seen an explosion of anti-Semitism in this country, in public, and a lot as well as a lot of questions about what anti-Semitism is. And so as an organization, we very much believe that we have to fight anti-Semitism together with fighting racism and xenophobia and other bigotries. And we often have to spend some time even teaching about what anti-Semitism is and how it relates to those other bigotries.
1: This is probably a good time to mention a phenomenal resource that Truah is making available called A Very Brief Guide to Anti-Semitism, and it's available on the TRUA website, and we'll have all of those links. Um, anything you want to say about that specifically before we move on?
2: I think we can we can move on. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go.
1: Yes, yeah, a super helpful resource. Actually, uh, Jill, I'm having a memory just as you begin talking about anti-Semitism And then this larger campaign and commitment to human rights. Many years ago, when I was a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, some folks might remember the crisis in Darfur in in, uh, Western Sudan, where there was a genocide happening uh, against uh, a a minority group um, and who, who had the misfortune of being on land that had oil underneath it. And so we can imagine all the dynamics that go into that. And so I was uh, helped organize something we called Worship in the Spirit of Justice, where we had—I forget if it was—I think it was about six weeks where we had uh, a public, kind of spiritual gathering, in and at particularly visible sites in Washington D.C. Uh, that evoked justice. And one—and I think our very first speaker was uh, Rabbi David Saperstein, who uh, you probably know. And I'll never forget that when. Rabbi Seifertine. In fact, I remember exactly the text uh, that he preached from, which was that that it's a sin to stand idly by while your neighbor is is oppressed. And uh, but I remember he said, you know, we Jews have experienced oppression, and it becomes very tempting to only then be obsessed with your own self preservation when you've had so many horrible attacks against you. He said, but we've made a decision that we're not only concerned about oppression against us, we're concerned about oppression against anybody. And I just thought, what a beautiful, beautiful attitude. One of my favorite little slogans I've ever seen from Trua is, let's see if I've got it right, resisting tyrants since Pharaoh. Is that? That's exactly right. Yeah. And I just thought, what a beautiful way to conceive of something close to the heart of Jewish identity. But I think a lot of Christians need to realize in trying to understand their own Christian identity, how they want to hold it. And then, of course, many are kind of getting rid of it because they they learn about this. But when Christians learn about the history of anti-Semitism, that this is has been deeply rooted in Christianity really since the end of the first century, I think it's quite shocking, and I'm going to guess that that many, many people in our own it, who are listening to a, this conversation, this is going to be news to them. They maybe know a little bit about it, but if they were to really dig into the history, they would be really shocked. And I, I thought maybe we could start in the present and then maybe look back at the past, but you grew up in Massachusetts, as I recall, and I wonder if you could just talk about what it's like to be a Jew in a Christian-majority neighborhood, state, country, and so on. Because I I think this is one of those things that's very hard for Christians to understand.
2: Thanks. Yeah, I grew up outside of Massachusetts, sorry, outside of Boston in Massachusetts, um, about 30 miles outside of Boston in a suburb that was not particularly Jewish. There was a good Jewish community, but maybe 80, 90% of the kids I went to school with were not Jewish in a, a big public school. And I would divide the question into maybe two categories. So one is about the ways in which Christianity, for many people, Christianity is really indistinguishable from being American, right? So the things like Uh, Santa Claus showing up in school or singing Christmas carols or all of the things that people do that they think, oh, well, that's not really religious because that's Santa Claus. That's the Easter bunny. That's just this cute kids thing. Uh, And it's, it's more welcoming. I remember very specifically being told by my parents which Christmas carols I had to mouth and not actually sing because maybe Rudolph was okay but Silent Night was that one I had to not sing out loud. Uh, I remember coming home very confused about Little Drummer Boy because it didn't really sound like a religious song to me and uh, somebody had to explain what it actually meant. Um, so some of it was just about the kind of ongoing just Christian hegemony, this uh, assumption that Christianity is is the norm and everything else is the exception. So we'll give... I mean, your one Hanukkah song, let alone, I don't think there was any consciousness that there might have been Muslim kids or Hindu kids, which by the way, there were, but there were certainly no songs for them. So there was at least some awareness that there were Jewish kids. Um, so that that's part of it, or the religious displays, um, certainly the way that the calendar is set and having Good Friday off, having Christmas break off. So that's that's one piece of it. And then, I mean, I've thankfully been lucky as have my kids in being around people who really can understand observance and her really accommodating on observance. So I, as a kid, would get pulled out from school on religious holidays, as do my kids now. They're in a public school in New York City. And that, um, thankfully, we've always been around people who didn't make that any issue or who have bent over backwards to make sure that there's some kosher food for us to eat. So that I feel really grateful for. I think the other piece that is maybe hard for people who don't grow up Jewish to understand is the just the um, inherited trauma that all of us have, which is very much about the Holocaust and not only about the Holocaust. So one of my key memories from growing up, I, my, I mean, my grandparents, my grandparents were already in the U.S. when World War II happened. Both of my grandfathers were GIs, and I also grew up knowing that there was family that had been left behind in Lithuania and Ukraine, who they never heard from again after the war. They never found out what happened to them. And so growing up with that, as well as having survivors around, um, especially in the 80s, I had survivors as Hebrew school teachers, they were just around, it was just a part of, of the community. And so, and really growing up with this message that America felt safe now, but so did Germany before the war, and that things could change at any moment. Even we're, we're recording on Purim, on the holiday of Purim, which is the story of the book of esther and it's really a story about a very assimilated jewish community in persia that's really part of the the general community and um and then all of a sudden something turns and there's an attempt to murder them so i definitely grew up with that consciousness and one thing i remember very clearly was, um, my best friend growing up was Catholic and in her house, there was an attic that we used to play with, play in. And I remember thinking, Oh, I'm so glad that they have an attic because for sure they would hide us. Like I knew this was the family who would hide us, which I still believe. Thank God they didn't have to, but I do believe that they would have. And I, I think if you talk to Jews, certainly who grew up, who are, uh, I don't know, if this is still true, true for kids growing up now, but certainly a large percentage of the Jewish community grew up figuring out which the friend, what, who was the friend who was going to hide them, and exactly where in their house they were going to be hidden. Um, so that's very much part of the consciousness.
1: I just feel like that's something we have to let sink in uh, to for for people to take to take that seriously. It's, I think, th- this idea that. Every child grows up having to negotiate that. And I'm guessing, Jill, that there is a a kind of conversation that Jewish parents have to have with their children, and they have to decide what's the age or what's the inciting incident that they need to have this conversation, where this reality of anti-Semitism deeply rooted in European history, which means Christian history, now Uh, children have to be taught this. Is that something you would feel okay to talk about a little bit?
2: Sure. So I think when I was growing up, I don't know that people thought about it. I think it was just around. I certainly remember learning things that were definitely not appropriate for kids at times that I shouldn't have learned them. Um, But with my own kids who are now 8 and 12, we were just much more conscious about what stories we told them when and how to introduce ideas. Though often they pick things up because they're reading some book and it mentions Hitler, right? Or some it'll it'll just come up. Even in in kids' books, something will come up around. I remember a book about Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a major American Jewish leader, a rabbi who was a survivor of the Holocaust and then became an activist. And I remember one of my kids at a very young age having a picture book about him. and somewhere in the picture book it said, well, his family, you know, where he escaped from um, from Nazi Germany. and I, I was even though, of course I know that about his biography, I was not exactly expecting it to come up in that moment in the picture book. we were also kind of, with with my kids, we had really the great blessing that they or at least my older daughter got to know one set of great-grandparents, my husband's grandparents, who were survivors from who survived the war in Poland. And especially my older daughter really got to know my, uh, my husband's grandfather, who was a survivor of Schindler's factory. And so for her, we wanted her to have a relationship with him that was not clouded by horror stories. We wanted her to have just a direct relationship with him she was probably, I think, seven, seven or so when he died. So that she was very, so she was very young. Um, but we did start by telling that story, which is both a story about the horrors of the Holocaust and also a story about the ways in which some people took took risks to save Jews. And so we we wanted to her to have that story. Something else that we think about a lot in our family when we. When we think about Holocaust stories in particular, then maybe I'll talk about anti-Semitism a little bit more in general, is that a lot of the Holocaust books for kids, like Number Our Stars, which is the first one that a lot of kids read, which I think is actually a really good book, and The Boy with the Striped Pajamas, which is not um, a good book or, or a movie, um, a lot of them center the stories of non-Jews who took these risks. And I remember particularly when my older daughter was reading Number of the Stars, which is generally recommended as the first Holocaust book, because it takes place in, I think, Denmark or Norway, I can't remember, and is about saving Jews. So it's not not the most horrible. You don't want to introduce the worst, worst things. But I do remember this feeling of, wait, she's coming away with this story about these good people who saved Jews, and that's important. But those people are the hero of the story, as opposed to to seeing Jews as, as the the heroes of of the story. And so we've definitely tried to tell the stories of um, of what Jews were doing, of our starting with our own family. In terms of other anti-Semitism, we want to balance between talking honestly about the history of anti-Semitism and also not frightening our kids. And I will say that it's gotten harder because. There have been these violent incidents, whether the, the murders at the Tree of Life Synagogue or in Poway, at the synagogue in Poway, or just recently the hostage taking situation in Colleyville, Texas. And of course, when our kids see that, it's, it's always on a Saturday night. I mean, we the, the event has always happened on, on Shabbat, on a Saturday. We don't use our phones or electronics on Saturday. So we turn on our phones Saturday night, and oh my God, this is what happened during the day. And our kids see this. And of course, they say to us, well, is that going to happen in our synagogue? And we can't promise them, no, it won't. We also in this moment in America can't promise them that there's not gonna be a shooting in their school or in the grocery store, unfortunately. Um, We can't make any promises to our children, which is life in a country with way too many guns. And we can't say to them, this will not happen in our synagogue. We can say this will almost definitely not happen. This is very rare, but we really have to balance between being cautious and understanding the, the dangers and also not being so scared that we can't live our lives or so scared that we can't, that we don't see ourselves as part of America and part of the American story.
1: What a challenge. I I remember being, uh, I think I was 11 years old, and I had never even heard the word Holocaust before. And I heard the word somewhere, and I remember coming home and saying to my mother, what does that mean? And so she took it very seriously because, you know, she had uh, been a young adult in World War II. And when I realized that, let's say I was 11 years old, that I was born in in, uh, 1956, so that 11 years before I was born, so the length of life that I had lived before I was born, she described for me what really had made an impact on her is when she saw the photographs of the people who'd been in the uh, in the prison caps and and when they were liberated, how thin they were and how, you know, how ho- horribly they had suffered. and and I remember my mother telling me we didn't know what was going on and it was so horrible. And yeah, I remember feeling like, wow, that wasn't that long ago. And then, of course, to watch, but but I also remember thinking, thank God that's behind us. But then to realize, no, it's not. And then I think the a big shock for me, as I grew older, I became a pastor, I became a preacher. Um, first, I, I had gradually in, realized how things that I took for granted that were just part of the Christian theology I had been taught were actually anti-Semitic and actually could create the context for Jews in the present and the future to suffer just as they had in the past. I'm wondering Jill would anything's come to mind that you would encourage Christians to to stop doing or avoid or take more seriously or do t- proactively to help turn around this tragic ugly vicious history.
2: Yeah, I think that it's important just like it's important for white people to really understand the history of racism and to um and to do some what we would call in Judaism cheshbon nefesh, or self-examination, examination of our soul, and 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 try to repair, uh, just try to repair the world. Try to we can't obviously go back and fix things, but we can try to move forward in a in a more positive way that includes repair. I think it's important for Christians also to do that. So I'll give just the very very short version of the history of anti-Semitism, which starts before Christianity. It's been dated even back to. Ancient Egypt, but really takes off, I would say, and at that point, the word anti-Semitism didn't exist. So I'll I'll say more about that, but anti-Judaism. But really once, I mean, early Christianity and early Judaism grow up together and in in opposition with each other, but really bouncing off of each other. So when we think about what was happening in the first century, it wasn't like there's Christians and there's Jews. There's lots of different sects and they're all kind of figuring it out and there's different leaders and and they're learning from each other or opposing each other. And so there's lots of different things happening. So very much the history of Judaism, the history of Christianity is in some ways in in reaction and response to one another. And once Christianity starts developing, then there's a theological question that has to be answered, which is, why is it that Jews are still around? Because if the Jewish Bible has been superseded, then Jews should just ha- should have accepted Jesus and should be Christians. So what are they still doing here? And so Christianity has to answer that question. And some of the ways that it answered the question were with pretty, uh, what we would now call anti-Semitic ideas. But it really takes off once... Um, once Rome converts to Christianity, because now it's not just people thinking about theology, but it's 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 actually got the power of of a government behind it. I mean, throughout the history, there's, say, differing ideas about, well, what do we do with the Jews? right? augustine is is credited credited, blamed, I don't know, something like that um for saying the Jews shouldn't be killed, but are kind of like preserved as maybe assigned Christians of, of something that went wrong. In some ways, that's how Christianity is sometimes looked as Jew, at Jews as a relic of the past. So that's that's one thing I'll maybe talk a little more specifically about how that shows up now in a second. And then the other thing is that Judaism and was often seen as, if you, if you were a Christian, you were arguing about theology, anything that you didn't like would be seen as a Judaizing influence. So um David Nirenberg, who's written the best book about anti-Semitism by far, it's called Anti-Judaism, talks about how you don't even, you didn't even need Jews around. There were lots of places where there actually were no Jews around, but people were accusing each other of being Judaizers because it was like, well, that's a foreign idea, so it might, must come from Judaism. And so kind of you know, fast forward, Enlightenment thinkers, there may be not so involved with Christianity, but still have to figure out how to hate Jews and start developing ideas about, about Judaism as something is basically saying, well, Christianity kind of took the best parts of Judaism. It took the morality. And so we there's something we can salvage in Christianity, but we can't salvage anything about Judaism. So those ideas are around. I mean, at the same time, Jews just politically are in all sorts of different situations, really depending on the place and the time, but in general, in most countries, at least in Western Europe don't have political rights. So whether you can live in a particular place is very dependent on is this on what kind of a place it is, the roles of either the king or the state or the Empire or whoever is in charge of that place um, often couldn't be landowners, which led to um, Jews taking on kind of portable professions that were needed by the Christian elite so um, and also that were, not considered things that the christians should do so like money lending or trade so professions that were jews were often forced into those professions because you couldn't own land you couldn't enter guilds you couldn't be in a lot of the other professions so that's what was left for you it was needed for you need money lenders so if christians can't be money lenders and jews can't do almost anything else and that's what jews are going to end up doing and and also it's portable so if you if one day you're expelled from the country that you're in, you can take your profession and go, which is not true of, let's say, a farmer. So um, so Jews have different political rights in different places, um, different rights to even marry or, or have children or live in, in particular areas. Uh, Jews were expelled from lots of countries. So it's, it's just very much, precar- it's very precarious. It's very dependent on the, on the time and place. So just kind of fast forward to the, mid-19th century, when um, really starting post uh, the French Revolution, but really into the mid-19th century, when Western Europe starts to emancipate its Jews, which means all sorts of different things. It doesn't mean that suddenly Jews have equal rights. It's like, okay, here you can vote, and maybe here you can own land, and here you can own land, but you can't vote, and here... But it's like, it really is very dependent. But in the middle of the 19th century, Uh, at least the newly unified Germany in its constitution officially emancipates its Jews. Now, again, it doesn't mean they were emancipated in every single German state, but that was officially what, what happened. And at that point, some people start getting very nervous because if Jews are emancipated, and if Jews are allowed to live anywhere they want and to wear regular clothes and to be in any professions and to speak, they're speaking German. And like, how are we gonna know who the Jews are? Um, I mean, in some cases, Jews were even converting to Christianity um, in order to assimilate. And so this idea develops that, well, now Jews are even a scarier, more nefarious presence because we can't even identify them. They're just this kind of poison among us. And at that point, the term anti-Semitism emerges. It was popularized by a pamphleteer named Wilhelm Marr, who pushed this idea of anti-Semitism based on Hebrew being a Semitic language, one of several Semitic languages, but he wanted to create a sort of pseudo-scientific explanation for why Jews were other that was based in race as opposed to religion um because you also have to explain well what about Jews who convert to Christianity why are they still a scary nefarious influence and that idea by the way originated in um after the inquisition when the when in spain there were lots of complex family trees of Jews who had been forced to convert and a sort of a distrust of of their family and um or accusations of different people of of having jewish roots so that's when it real when there was the real start to the idea that Judaism, that Jews were a race as opposed to a religion that you could move in or out of. So he so William Marr popularized this idea, of anti-Semitism, that was supposed to be sort of scientific, like Jews are a race and therefore and they're dangerous and etc. So that term has continued. It's important to know where that term came from because sometimes people will say, Well, wait a second, Arabs are Semites. How does anti-Semitism mean hatred of Jews, or people don't even know what the term means? So it's important to know that that is the term that's been popularized for for hatred of Jews. That's where it came from. It was created by an anti-Semite who was very proud of being an anti-Semite and defined himself like that. And then some of the ideas that developed about Jews in the probably one of the most influential ones in the early 20th century. There was a forgery called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion that emerged in Russia that. Really, around the same time as a major set of pogroms in Russia, attacks on on Jewish towns that, where people were murdered and raped and um, just um, horrible, horrible attacks, and that forgery claims to be the minutes of a meeting among the so-called elders of Zion, the leaders of the Jewish community, about how to run the world, how to take over the world. And that idea of Jews being behind the scenes and pulling the strings has unfortunately um, continued. I mean, Henry Ford very famously distributed that booklet. It's still, you can find it very easily on any books not any book-selling site, and many book-selling sites, and it unfortunately continues to go around and continues to lead to anti-Semitic stereotypes.
0: Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage.
1: So if, you know, if we were doing a whole course on on this subject, which would be grim, but it's important. Christians would have to go back and read what many of the early church fathers, early Christian scholars, people with familiar names like Augustine, Chrysostom, Thomas Aquinas. And then you come into the period of the Reformation, some of the the bitterest, most vicious anti-Semitic writings ever came from Martin Luther. And so this kind of deeply embedded sentiment is there in Christianity. It's enfranchised in so many different theological ideas, including this theological tradition called Calvinism that has been so strong in American religious history and and has had a resurgence in recent years, is all based on this idea of chosenness. And one of the things that happens is that The Jews were the chosen people, and then the Christians became the chosen people. And so this, which uh, you used the word supersessionism before, is this idea that the Christians superseded. So many of these ideas are so deeply embedded. And then passages of the Bible get quoted, and it, it all feels holy to Christians because it's the Bible. But there are ways that these texts are understood that are so insulting and dehumanizing and demeaning. To Jews. And so for Christians, this requires a deep kind of moral self examination and a deep interrogation of our own history and then a deep interrogation of our own current practices. Even the passages of the Bible that we read, of the Christian scriptures that we read without explanation. We start to realize, oh my gosh, that could be used in such anti-Semitic ways. So, so this creates a new moral challenge, and and a lot of people, when they learn about this, and I, I have to confess, I have felt this at many points when I began examining this subject years ago. I I think my first sort of scholarly introduction was uh, was a Thomas K. Hill's book, um, Constantine's Sword. But I, I remember thinking, I don't even want to be a Christian, right? I don't even want to be associated with this because of this ugly, vicious history. But then I think there, there is maybe some value for Christians to say, well, the thing for me to do is to not to try to achieve innocence by distancing myself or by calling anti-Semitic Christians, not true Christians, that's another way to sort of get the taint away, but maybe it is just as white people have to uh, see regarding the extermination of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples, that this is part of a of an act of repentance and an act of, uh, of deep inner work that has to happen. I don't know. I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts about that, uh, Jill.
2: Yeah, I I definitely don't want to tell people that not to be Christian anymore. I mean, it's a 2,000-year-old tradition that has really a lot of beautiful ideas and theology and history, and so that is absolutely not my goal. And I do think, um, I mean, many of our religious traditions have ideas in them that we have to struggle with and we have to reinterpret and we have to understand differently now. Christianity is in a particular position because it has also been associated with ruling powers, so it's it's not only the theology; it's also that it's been the religion of kings and empires who have a certain power that they've decided to carry out, often to the detriment of of Jews as well as indigenous people and Muslims and and other people who were not Christian and and white. So I, I don't want to. So I, I really don't want anybody throwing away Christianity. And I think it is important to go back and to and to examine it and to think about well what how do we understand these ideas now can we argue with our tradition can we um can we are there things that we can reinterpret like you said not just teaching something without comment but teaching not saying we're gonna hide this and put it away, but we're we're gonna teach with some scaffolding and we're gonna talk about it. I will say that a number that a lot of parts of Christianity, particularly the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, have done a lot of really good work and in interfaith dialogue with Jews and have done a lot of this examination of history. So I also don't want to say that it it hasn't been done at all. I think I'll say you asked me before about what are some specific things that that Christians could do. So for sure, 100 percent learning the history reading some books about anti-Semitism, reading some books about the history of Christianity, and then also thinking about how Jews are perceived. I mentioned before that sometimes Jews are perceived as this historically preserved remnant, that for some parts of the Christian world, there's no difference between the Israelites of the Bible and Jews today, which doesn't recognize that there's thousands of years of Jewish tradition. In fact, Jews today are what we would call rabbinic Jews, which by the way, is when you think about the Pharisees, that's that's who we're talking about. So that's another term to just be very careful about. But um, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era, that at that point um, the Jewish community was was scattered and um, had an oral tradition that started to be written down and developed, the Talmud was developed, in primarily in what's in Babylon, what's now Iraq, as well as in northern, what's now northern Israel. There were two Talmuds, but that's a whole other story. Um, but th- th- that rabbinic tradition was developed as well as a whole tradition of law. And so when we think, so when Jews live out, when Jews live our Jewish lives, we're not living based on on the Bible. The way that we practice is not a, little, a literal interpretation of the biblical text. It's filtered through thousands of years of interpretation and explanation and development so it's it's important to know that um i'll say because this is about to come up this time of year it comes up a lot around um, so-called christian seders that sometimes christians think well let me do a seder because that's what jesus would have done but actually jesus wouldn't have done a seder because the seder was developed in the rabbinic period and it was so the Seder as we know it today was was not something that was around during that time. Jesus would have brought probably I don't, sacrifices to the temple. That's what, what people were doing then, but that is that's not the same as the contemporary Seder. So also being careful about just about appropriation of, of Jewish practices and Jewish concepts. And then another thing I'll say, this is also just a very simple thing, but in in language, so there's what we call the Tanakh, which is the Torah, the first five books of of Moses, the uh, Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which are, are the writings. And that whole body is what Christians call often call the Old Testament. We don't use that term because that implies that there's a New Testament. Um, it's also see, not necessarily the same book uh, because it, it's not ordered in the same way, particularly once you get to the prophets and the writings, the order is is different. And based on our respective traditions. Most translations are based in the original Greek translation. They're not necessarily directly from the Hebrew, right? So we're not even necessarily reading the same words. And so I think one, you know, one basic language choice that we can make is to say the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible. So the Christian Bible would include both of those those parts, um, but not to apply that the Old Testament, which sounds like it's something that should have been thrown away a long time ago.
1: Yes, beautiful, beautifully said. Anything else you wanted to add, or
2: I, I think it's just really important to have relationships with Jews and to talk to Jews about to understand what our tradition is. Um, to have those kinds of relationships, also because if something comes up, we wanted the kind of relationship where, if something problematic happens, that there's somebody to call or that people are in a relationship that they feel comfortable saying, "Whoops, I messed that up. I'm so sorry."
1: Jill, we're having this conversation. While the invasion of Ukraine carries on. And all kinds of memories of World War II are coming back. And and so, in some ways, a lot of there's a lot of us, a lot of people looking back and thinking, we thought that those things were not going to happen again. And of course, that phrase never again has taken on profound emotional and spiritual intensity. I wonder if I could sort of be speaking to you as a, as a religious leader who I respect a great deal and just, uh, and I've I've read a beautiful piece that you wrote about responding as a Jew to, to what's happening in in Ukraine. But I wonder if you could give all of us who are listening a, a chance to sort of be part of your congregation <laughs> and just what what are you what are you encouraging people to do and feel and think and pray as we're all experiencing the agony of watching things unfold that we wish we would have outgrown but we haven't and 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 this feeling that the human species is still so vulnerable to horrible backsliding and and so yeah just we we need you to be our rabbi for a couple minutes maybe
2: thanks yeah it's definitely like you said it's horrible to watch the millions of refugees who are coming out of ukraine and the bombing and the fact that this was all because one autocratic leader decided that he wanted to go to war there was no other reason for this war and that is unfortunately very often the way that that things happen, and it does bring back that trauma. Certainly for for Jews, of, even though this is not particular, this is not specifically about Jews for the most part. In a couple of ways, it is. But seeing uh, just the, reliving that trauma, remembering how our own families had to, if they were lucky, they could flee; if they weren't lucky, they they weren't able to flee. Um so it, that's bringing back some historical trauma. The Ukraine has miraculously rebuilt a Jewish community um after the Soviet after the fall of the Soviet Union which is really miraculous because under the Soviet Union people couldn't practice religion at all. There was no religion and so Jews were identified because they had that as their they had Jew as their nationality on their passport, but it was only a bad thing. There was there were, I mean, there were some underground, thank God, there was some underground Jewish culture and Jewish practice, but it wasn't something that you could practice in public. And so there were generations of Jews who grew up in the Soviet Union knowing very little about Judaism other than what was on their passport and that they might get mocked at, at school or discriminated against because of it. And so it's amazing. So then in the, in the 70s and 80s, when there were Jews who were asking to leave the Soviet Union the refuseniks they and many of whom who thankfully were able to come to either the US or Israel um, but some people stayed and there's hundreds of thousands or there were hundreds of thousands of Jews in Ukraine and they had they had synagogues and they had Jewish community centers and they had a Jewish life that is now um, literally being bombed. so that is bringing up some trauma. So for those of us who are who are watching this situation, it is really important for us to remember that in World War II, for the most part, the world did nothing. The world, including the United States, would not take in Jews who were trying to flee when it was possible to flee. And we have to take that, that lesson and open our borders to people who are fleeing, whether it's from Ukraine or Afghanistan or Syria or Honduras, um, but where, wherever people are fleeing from. And live out that that moral responsibility that we failed on during the Holocaust. And certainly, we have to pray. That's that always it's not enough, but it I believe that it helps. And just also practically, the thing I'm doing is giving money to the people on the ground. because um, they're the people who who know to the organizations that are on the ground because they're the ones who who know what's needed there. And really just not to look away. I mean, we've looked away from so many disasters, but just not to look away and to imagine ourselves in the in the place of every one of those those people who is either deciding to stay or not or has to stay or who's fleeing for their life.
1: It it reminds me of those precious passages in the Hebrew Bible known as lamentations, where where we're invited to hold pain and not try to fix it or explain it away, but to hold it and feel it in the presence of God and let it do its work of softening our hearts and fortifying our hearts to stand for justice and to work for peace.
2: Yeah, and I think since you I mean since you brought up lamentations, I'll say that I mean for Jews, displacement is just a part of our history ever since the destruction of the temple and that's recorded there. And something that I do find comforting is not only are those are those words of lamentations about just mourning, not saying it's going to be better, or this was part of God's plan, or just, it's it's just mourning. And in the rabbinic tradition, in the interpretive tradition, we have um, images of God mourning along with the people. And this idea that God is, is mourning and crying and praying along with us, and also, we also have an idea in Judaism that God comes with us out of exile, that when we go into exile, that God doesn't just stay in place, but comes with us. And I very much believe that, that, that God is traveling with people who are going into exile and also that God is weeping right along with us.
1: One other issue would be great for us to talk about, Jill. I um, Some years ago, I got to spend some time in Israel and in the West Bank and I was among, uh, among Jews. I was among, I, I, we visited, uh, settlers and in, in settlements. We visited Jews working against house demolitions. We visited Muslims who stayed in homes of Muslims and Christian Palestinians. And so we sort of were just feeling the agony and complexity of that whole world. And I think and one of the things that's very disturbing for me as, you know, I grew up in an evangelical background, was watching how this nation of Israel and Judaism become a kind of prop in a, a Christian vision of the future and, uh, and and so on. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Thanks. That definitely is one of the thorniest issues. I'll start by saying something about what Israel means to Jews, both historically and also now. And then I want to talk a little bit about how Christians in, in different ways relate to Israel and can relate to Israel. So Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people. Judaism, let's say one one confusing thing about Judaism is that people want it to be just a religion or just questions about is it a race is it not a race it's it's a people that's the term that we use um peoplehood that's probably the best term this idea that we are a people which means that we have religious practices and we have a homeland and we have one sacred language and many other vernacular languages and we have a history etc so we do have uh the, the land of Israel is our sacred homeland and it's where the early part of Jewish history happened until the destruction of first the first temple and then the second temple and the, the Roman occupation. And so it's a place that the Jews have always felt connected to, that we continue to pray, to return to, Three times a day in in our prayers, we pray for a return to Jerusalem. We have multiple fast days during the course of the year, mourning the destruction of Jerusalem and praying to be back. So we have, it is very, very much built into our tradition, this desire to go back to this homeland. And there's always been a small Jewish community, particularly in the holy cities, Jerusalem, Tzfat, Hebron, Tiberias, um, so there's always been Jewish communities in, in Israel, but usually very, very small um, for, for much of history. And then in the in the 19th century, during the a time of nationalism and the fights for minority rights in general, Jews also started to say, well, wait a second, if the Lithuanians are fighting for a state and the poles are fighting for minority rights if the, if you're polish in germany and right, there's all these different fights for for national either national rights where you are or for for states then what about jews because jews were a minority everywhere and so the the real shift in the zionist movement at that time was not saying that jews had a connection to israel that was that has always been true since the beginning of of judaism but saying That Jews, rather than waiting and praying and waiting for divine intervention and waiting for the Messiah to come to bring us back into Israel, that we could use political means, specifically appealing to first the sultan of the Ottoman Empire when it was under Ottoman control, and then after World War I to, to the British Empire, which had become the colonial power there. So that was the shift. So I want to say, first of all, that sometimes arguments about Zionism get very simplified with some people saying there is no difference between Zionism and Judaism. And those people are ignoring the fact that Zionism was a political movement that made the radical step of saying, we don't have to wait for the messianic era. We can use modern political means now. But then there are people who say, well, Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism and sometimes even go as far as to say things like the alleged temple or to say Jews have... And invented Jews invented this history with Israel, or even one anti-Semitic conspiracy that that I hear a lot, unfortunately is, well, today's Jews aren't real Jews. And that goes back to this idea that the king of the Khazars converted, and it's it's this old anti-Semitic theory that that says that today's Jews aren't actually descended from from ancient Jews. So that other side says, well, there's no there's nothing. Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. It's, it's just a political movement, but neither of those are true. So Jews have a very long connection to the land of Israel and denying that is anti-Semitic. And it was a specific decision to turn that into a political movement in the context of other minority rights and, and political movements. Um, and of course, some of the backdrop of this is, and there were arguments in, in that period about well maybe Jews instead should claim national rights in the countries that we are so Jewish schools Jewish political parties just right we think about national rights um you know very different very differently now right we think about citizenship differently but the idea is like maybe there would be a Lithuanian school and a Polish school and a, and why shouldn't there be a Jewish school in that place so you know, Jews different ways Jews started moving to Israel but then obviously in the Holocaust, there was when every other country, including the United States, closed its doors to Jews. Some Jews were able to sneak into Palestine, then under under British control, but they weren't actually allowed. There were there were very strict quotas there. Um, but Israel then became something that Jews also feel, most Jews feel very strongly is this idea that Israel is a refuge and is the place that we could go. And Israel has a history of being a place that Jews from um, not only post-Holocaust, but also Jews who were expelled from Iraq or Jews who who fled Egypt very much in in response to Zionism, some of those countries started taking away Jewish Jewish rights. But there, that's not to say there wasn't anti-Semitism before, or Jews fleeing the Soviet Union. It was a place that could take in Jews. Now Jews um, fleeing Ukraine, and so it's important to understand that deep relationship and commitment. Now that doesn't so that doesn't mean that we should ignore the human rights situation of Palestinians at all. So in 1967. The Six Day War, Israel captured a number of territories: the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, and the Golan Heights, and the East Jerusalem, Gaza, and West Bank. Or, they they all have different. They have different um, legal. Statuses, which I'm not going to go into, but essentially Palestinians are living under occupation, which means without citizenship rights. And so that is a political issue because once Israel just made the decision to be a country, to be a member of the UN, it has to observe the same international human rights laws as, as other countries. And uh, I'll say that Truah, as an organization, we fight for the human rights of both Israelis and Palestinians. I mean, when I say Israelis, actually, I should say that Israel, about 80% of Israeli citizens are Jewish citizens, about 20% are Palestinian citizens, and then there's another 5 million or so, um, and there's about 9 million Israeli citizens, 80% Jewish, 20% Palestinian, and another 5 million or so Palestinians who are not citizens, who are living under occupation. So we fight for all of those people. We start with the assumption that none of those people are going anywhere, that almost none of those people have another passport. They are all staying exactly where they are, more or less. And so we need to create a situation that preserves the human rights of both of those people. And we need to also create a situation that allows Israel to continue being a place that Jews know that we can flee, because unfortunately, there still keep being reasons that that we have to flee. And and so TRUA as an organization, we support two states side by side. So there would be a place where... There would be Israel. There would be Palestine. It would mean that all of the people who are living there can have um, have the right to citizenship in a country, and the details people can can work out the details. But that's what we support as an organization. And I'll say that there are within the the Christian world, which obviously is very big, there are some who often cr- consider themselves Christian Zionists, Evangelical Zionists, who for a I'll say some very general things I want to be clear that I know not everybody exactly fits it not everybody fits in this category but some of the ideas that are out there are first Jews as this as this remnant of a biblical people Jews as today's Jews as being exactly like the Israelites in the Bible and this sense of trying to kind of preserve us as a museum piece and preserve Israel as a museum piece without attention to who we actually are now and some of those communities are very involved in pushing and supporting right-wing Israeli politicians and right-wing Israeli policies that are focused on expanding and holding on to the settlements which are the Jewish communities inside of of the occupied West Bank and so that is not helpful because it doesn't move us any closer to a, a solution also the ideas the the idea in there that It's the Jews are basically a tool to reaching the end of days. Jews have to move back to Israel so that there can be this kind of um, you know end of days moment. That that very much sees Jews as as part as a pawn within or supporting character within Christian history, as opposed to subjects with our own agency and our own messianic um, dreams and hopes and um, and ideas. And then the second trend. This is, is more complicated, but many progressive churches are very connected with Palestinian communities and are um, very involved in fighting occupation. And I want to say, first of all, that criticizing Israel fighting occupation is not anti-Semitic, um, just like fighting for the rights of Uyghurs, for example, against the genocide of Uyghurs, or fighting um, or boycotting Russia, right? These are, are not things that are necessarily prejudiced and uh, because they're actions that are taken against a country in order to force that country to to do something. But there are times when those actions cross the line into anti-Semitism. So for example, denying Jewish history in the land of Israel or any kind of disregard for Jews, like any language about, well, they should all go back to where they came from as though that were even possible. I mean, I'm telling you the Jews are not going back to Iraq or uh, Poland, um, or Ukraine. Um, so, any kind of language like that, and I do think that it's important for Christians, when in thinking about um, why to take why and how to take action against Israel, really to examine what the motivations are. Now, I'm not for sure. I think that it's important for Christians to be connected to Palestinian communities and to act to push any country, including Israel, to follow international law, but I do think that sometimes there has to be just a, a self-searching and thinking, well, okay, why is it that this issue is is really important to me? And for some, it might be because of the connections to Palestinian Christian communities, particularly on the ground. For some, it might be, like you said, like because you visited there and have a relationship. Um, and I think sometimes there is a grain of anti-Semitism, and so it's important to be able to to push that out and to make sure that any action that, that one is taking is, um, is one that doesn't cross that line. And I'll say also that Jews are particularly sensitive to being lectured by Christians about human rights because of the history of the Holocaust and because of the history of, of anti-Semitism. So that's that's a dynamic that comes up that I think it's important for um, for Christians to be sensitive to.
1: There was a moment in my conversation with Rabbi Jill Jacobs that I want to return to. Do you remember her talking about how as a Jewish child, She learned about the Holocaust and other atrocities against Jews. And she was visiting a friend who had an attic. This was a safe friend, she thought, who would protect her if another Holocaust broke out. Those two images of potential Christian identity. One, Christians who stigmatized Jews proving themselves dangerous as neighbors. That's one possible Christian identity. And I invite you to face this reality, that many of our fellow Christians are indeed dangerous neighbors, and that we may also be dangerous neighbors and not realize it. The other image, the image of good Christian neighbors who would protect their Jewish neighbor open their attic, open their home, protect them. I invite you to consider that that is an option all of us can embrace. That to be a Christian is to be the kind of person who would risk one's own self and safety to protect and serve, to be in solidarity with one's neighbor of another faith. And then Rabbi Jill reminded us When Jews wanted to escape Germany and other countries under Nazi control, they were turned away by the so-called Christian nation of the United States. America wouldn't welcome them. And so I think today of people who are in danger, whether they're Jews, Ukrainians, Syrians, Hondurans, Guatemalans. And I wonder who would be neighbors who would welcome the other into our country, our homes, for protection, for safety. One last image. I invite you to imagine a Christian who has learned about how Christians have been dangerous neighbors in the past and now commits to speaking out to their fellow Christians to help them see the potential dangers hidden in their beliefs and behaviors so that they can more consciously choose what kind of neighbor and what kind of Christian each of us wants to be. I want to thank Rabbi Jill Jacobs for being a guest on this episode, the Center for Action and Contemplation for supporting and hosting these important conversations. And I want to thank each of you uh, listeners for devoting this time to learning how to see our own Christian faith in a fresh and healthy way. And a special thanks to Corey Pig, the producer of this program, who is such a joy to work with.
0: Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.